I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Foundation. It's funny, a while ago we had uh, John Rendon, uh, who gave a talk a year ago, and everybody assumed he was a conservative because he was doing work for uh, the White House. Well, he's done work for the last five White Houses and probably will do work for the next five. Um, and he was a hard-over Democrat, uh, basically born that way and will stay that way. Frank is my favorite kind of conservative. Um, I used to know Herman Kahn, and Herman was wonderful. Frank is wonderful. And one of the reasons Frank is wonderful is, unlike many intellectuals, uh, he will stand up and be accountable for stuff he's said and thought and revisit it and engage in what's called intellectual honesty. Frank Fukuyama. Well, thanks uh, very much, Stuart. I'm really grateful uh, to the Long Now uh, Foundation for bringing me out here. I was actually supposed to have given a lecture in November, but I had a little accident on my uh, bike. Uh, But I'm uh, back on my feet and uh, really glad to be uh, here. When Stuart first asked me to speak in this series, uh, he said, this is a series on long-term thinking, and can you talk about anything. And I thought, you know, most of what I do is pretty uh, policy-oriented towards the next six months to two years. And I said, well, probably not. Then it occurred to me, I'd written this book a while ago called The End of History and the Last Man. And I said, well, actually, that does fit in uh, to the overall framework of this series pretty well. And I have been thinking about this consistently ever since I wrote the original article uh, with that title 17 years ago. So maybe maybe we could talk about that. So that's what I'm going to Uh, speak to you about uh, today. So what I'm going to do is, first, since there's been a lot of misunderstanding about this, I'm just going to restate uh, what the end of history was all about. Uh, And then I'm going to go through uh, four different objections. Every conceivable objection to this theory has been uh, raised by one person at some point uh, over the years. But I want to deal with the ones that I believe are the most cogent and Quite honestly, uh, there are ones that I don't necessarily have answers to. Uh, And for all I know, uh, the theory could be complete bunk and will be disproven. And in fact, I'll I'll give you several empirical tests for whether the theory is is correct or whether you'll be able to see that it's correct uh, as we go through through the lecture. Uh, And the four, uh, just to give you a little heads up, the four objections first has to do with uh, uh, radical Islam uh, and... Uh, its rejection of modernity. Second has to do with 
the lack of collective action and accountability and basically democracy at an international level. Uh, the third has to do with the problem of poverty, about how you get on the uh, modernization escalator. And then the fourth has to do with technology. Now, let me uh, go to the question of what the end of history was about. Uh, in about 10 days, I'm going to get on an airplane. I'm going to go to Japan to give a couple of lectures. And then after about 10 days in Japan, I'm going to fly down and spend a couple of weeks in the highlands of Papua New Guinea. Now, between Japan and Papua New Guinea, you basically get the two ends of the development spectrum, at least as it exists in today's world, from a society in the highlands where you actually have certain uh, pockets or tribes that have not seen the next tribe over uh, in PNG, much less uh, a European or an Australian or a Japanese or anyone else. Uh, it was a society that was completely acephalous. There was no state, uh, and many of the people in the highlands were are still basically living at a hunter-gatherer uh, level of existence. And then, of course, Japan is Japan. So the question is, uh, there was a certain period in human history when virtually the whole of the world looked like Papua New Guinea. Everybody was divided up into these little groups of 50, 60 people, very isolated, uh, without um, uh, technology to produce agriculture, without higher forms of political organization. Uh, today, increasing parts of the world... Uh, look like Japan. China, the largest country in the world, is hurtling uh, in that direction. And the question that this raises is, is this uh, a coherent process and is there a reason to think that the kind of modernization that takes you from the level of Papua New Guinea to the level of Japan is actually driven by deeper <coughs> um, social, economic, historical forces or is it all just a big accident? Uh, could we all return to the status of being uh, Highlanders at some point in, uh, in the future? Uh, and is there any particular reason to think that uh, the kinds of political systems we see around us um, uh, uh, have, a, uh, have this kind of deeper historical meaning? Now, this is basically a theory about modernization. I guess that's the simplest way to... Uh, uh, explain it. And of course, modernization is something that virtually every intellectual believed in uh, over the past, I would say, 150 years. And in fact, in the years prior to the 1980s, uh, a large majority, I would say, of progressive intellectuals believed not only that there would be a progressive modernization uh, as human societies evolved, but that there was also an end of history. And the end of history would be some form of communist uh, utopia. And when I wrote my original article uh, in 1989, uh, I made a very simple observation, uh, which was that I, too, like all of the Marxists, believed uh, that there was this progressive history uh, that was propelling societies to different and more complex levels of social organization, but that it didn't look like we were ever going to get to communism, uh, that whatever seemed to be at the terminal point of this modernization process was some version of a market-based uh, economy and some version of liberal democracy. And so it was actually a fairly modest um, thesis that we would be getting off this train one stop earlier than most people had um, anticipated. And so it was not an outlandish uh, thesis uh, in terms of the way that people had thought about human history, but it did seem to reflect to me what were the big um, uh, developments at that time. Now, 
In terms of uh, universal histories, of, of which Marxism is a, is a variant, uh, there have a, been a lot of them written in history. A lot of them are Christian, because the Christian Bible actually talks about a beginning of history in the Garden of Eden, or the creation story, and it talks about um, uh, an end of history when uh, God's um, uh, kingdom arrives. And in a certain sense, uh, Marxism was a secular version. Uh, it really, in a sense, took Hegel to say that what we have in the human historical process is something like the story of the Christian Bible, except played out in increasingly secular terms, and that was uh, a story that then Marx uh, continued. You can actually enlarge the story because the kind of human history that I am going to talk about uh, has not been in existence for more than about 10,000 years. Uh, Bob Wright wrote a book a few years ago called Non-Zero, in which he actually tried to place all of human history in a history of um, the biosphere in general, in which he noted that there was this very long term over the course of billions of years, uh, an evolution as you went from prokaryotes to eukaryotes to multicellular organisms, where individual single-celled organisms learned to live with each other and cooperate in multicellular beings, and then so on up the evolutionary chain. I'm not going to get into that part of the story. Uh, but it is possible if you take a sufficiently long um, perspective, as I guess we're supposed to do in this series, uh, to see that actually human evolution and the evolution of human uh, societies does take place in a much broader uh, evolutionary story uh, that includes non-humans as well. Now, the main uh, person who has raised a systematic objection to my version of the end of history, my version of, of modernization, that is to say that there is a universal process of modernization that sooner or later uh, most societies will arrive at, is actually my former uh, teacher and still a friend, a good friend Samuel Huntington, who wrote a book a few years after the end of history called The Clash of Civilizations. And he made a very different kind of argument. He said that the evolution of human societies in the direction of liberal democracy was a kind of accident, that culture uh, is the ultimate uh, way that the societies define themselves, that there will be seven or eight major cultural groups that will be largely uh, invariant, and that what I see as a universal uh, set of values, potentially universal set of values and institutions that were developed in the West are actually the cultural emanation of the particular Christian culture that happened to develop in this particular part of Northern Europe at a particular historical time, but that if you grew up in a Hindu or a Confucian uh, or an Orthodox Christian or a Muslim uh, cultural context, uh, there is no particular reason to think that you will develop uh, similar sorts of political uh, institutions. Uh, and so, in a sense, uh, his view is that uh, all of the developments that we have experienced in modernizing societies is really culture-bound, and that ultimately you can be modern. You can have a, an Islamic Republic of Iran that could presumably produce semiconductors and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, very uh, high-quality cars, and yet be ruled by a system of uh, mullahs where authority comes uh, out of the Quran, uh, because culture is 
as I said, the ultimate uh, defining characteristic uh, of societies that will not be overcome by the integrating forces of modernization. Now, I have an interlinked series of arguments about why, if you step back a little bit and take this long uh, perspective, why should we think that history is directional as opposed to being simply cyclical or just random, you know, one damn thing after another. And I would say that uh, the, probably the one social phenomenon that guarantees that you're not going to have a random or a cyclical history is the accumulation of knowledge related to modern science and technology. Because if you think about... Um, social phenomena, the one thing that is cumulative and is not uh, something subject to periodic loss, unlike, let's say, the arts or literature or um, uh, even particular forms of government, uh, is the steady accumulation of knowledge that is driven by human curiosity and human uh, desire uh, to be able to master and manipulate uh, the external world. Now, I would say that at one end of this machine uh, that I would construct, you would put the development of science and technology uh, as the driver, and it's connected by a drive shaft to economic development because economic development is determined by the horizon of technological possibilities made possible by any given level of technological development. So the world of coal and steel or of the steam engine uh, produces societies that look a certain way. You start urbanizing, you start uh, developing an industrial working class, you have highly centralized uh, larger states, but that is very different from the kind of world that emerges uh, after the microprocessor, after the Internet, in which uh, power tends to be more uh, diffuse, in which it is much more difficult for centralized hierarchies to control the flow of information, the flow of power, uh, the flow of uh, resources. And therefore... Um, each one of these economic ages <clears throat> is going to differ in systematic ways uh, from the one that preceded it, determined by the level uh, of technology. And I think that is fairly well uh, accepted. The process of industrialization, as you go from resource exports to uh, uh, light manufacturing to heavy manufacturing to uh, full industrialization and then to a post-industrial society. That's a pattern that's been replicated by late developers, um, whatever the cultural starting point from which they uh, start off. Now, so the, the, the engine of science and technology. <clears throat> you have economics, and then there's a much more... Uh, loose set of connecting rods that tie the economy to politics. Uh, it is the case that there is a very strong empirical correlation between high levels of economic development and liberal democracy. Now, Huntington would say that this is simply accidental, that it just so happens that the Christian West modernized first, uh, and therefore this correlation between wealth and democracy is a byproduct of this, this cultural phenomenon. But it is still striking that even outside of Western, uh, the bounds of what we call Western society, including uh, countries in Asia, uh, this very interesting pattern has emerged where at about $6,000 per capita income, which is about the level that Taiwan and Korea achieved sometime in the early 1980s, uh, you get the development of an industrial working class, urbanization, much higher levels of education, um, 
universal uh, literacy, the development of a professional class, a complex civil society, uh, and the development of a property, uh, property middle class, or a middle class de- defined in terms of its ownership of property. And all of these things have been linked in various ways to the emergence of political demands for participation in systems. There's no question that you can have authoritarian modernization at very rapid rates. This is what South Korea, Singapore, China today uh, have all done. But at a certain level of wealth, it seems that there's a change in the nature of the society that seems to demand um, uh, greater involvement and accountability in the way that governments function, which is what we call uh, political democracy. So, so the first two parts of the machine are connected fairly rigidly, but the second part is a pretty wobbly connection. There are very rich societies like Singapore uh, that aren't democracies, and there are relatively poor societies like Costa Rica uh, or India that, uh, that, that are democracies. So it's not a perfect correlation. Now, at the far end of this machine, you get, I don't know, things connected by strings or something, um, because when you get to the realm of culture, uh, I actually agree with Huntington that the, the connections are not that great. I believe that ultimately you are not going to get a, a homogenization of cultures around the world. And in fact, I would hope that we do not get a homogenization uh, of cultures. But there probably is something in the boundaries of cultural evolution that, that needs to take place in a, um, in a really modern society. One of them may be uh, secular politics because, among other things, it doesn't seem like it's very safe when religion enters politics in a big way or when you get a politicized religion. But I think it's probably safe to say that at the end of this train of, of gears or, or whatever they are, uh, that, that cultural homogenization... We're, we're never going to become what, what Huntington calls Davos man, you know, this global cosmopolitan, globalized, technology-using, uh, consumer, you know, self-satisfied consumer, thank, thank goodness. Um, but... Uh, the rest of the, you know, the rest of the process, it does seem to me you can make an argument that um, there is um, uh, this kind of set of connections. And the question is whether the institutions that we see in currently modern societies uh, are actually, you know, there, there's no question that Huntington is right, that this stuff appeared in the Christian West for reasons having to do with a particular set of cultural and historical uh, events that took place in early modern Europe. Uh, Democracy, universal human rights uh, is in a way, uh, as many philosophers, Tocqueville, Hegel, Nietzsche, have all said it is a form of secularized uh, Christianity. Our doctrine, contemporary doctrine of human rights comes ultimately from the Christian doctrine uh, of the universal equality of human beings under God based on uh, their possession of certain divine attributes like choice, all right? So there's no question that historically uh, there was this connection, but the question is, once you discover these institutions, do they become functional in a way that they are usable by any other civilization regardless of its cultural starting points? The scientific method was invented by René Descartes um, uh, and, and um, others in Europe at a certain historical point, but once it's discovered, it's invariant whether you're uh, African or Asian or uh, Latin American, the scientific method becomes a kind of universal possession. And so the question is, are 
liberal democratic institutions, uh, market uh, institutions in the economy uh, like that, or are they, as Huntington would argue, culturally, uh, culturally bound? Uh, and um, I believe that even with all of the uh, sometimes terrible political events that have happened since I first wrote this article back in 1989, right as the Berlin Wall was coming down, that that basic story about modernization is still on track. Uh, it is very fashionable. I don't know, maybe it's different here in San Francisco. and Washington is very pe- uh, fashionable to be pessimistic about everything. And a lot of people like the intelligence agencies are paid to be pessimistic. Uh, and so you focus on terrorism in the Middle East, but we are actually today and over the past five years have been living through one of the most remarkable periods in global human history where there's not a single region of the world that has not been experiencing uh, sustained growth. And the two largest countries in the world, China and India, are leading the pack in terms of growth rates. Now, obviously, there are downsides to this global warming and all sorts of uh, you know, perhaps unsustainable trends that we've started, but in terms of people being lifted out of poverty, you've had several hundred million uh, in that category over the past 20 to 25 years because modernization has been very successful uh, in many, many parts of the world. And so I think the basic storyline of human development is still very much with modernization. The question is, does that modernization then require liberal democracy or not? And here you've got these really two interesting social experiments going on, which are Russia and China, because Russia and China are both modernizing, uh, growing economically, but under um, basically under authoritarian regimes. I mean, in Russia you've got uh, elections, but basically no horizontal uh, accountability in the political system. And in China, you've got a fully authoritarian system that suppresses dissidents, censors the Internet, does all of these other uh, sorts of things. So I told you I would give you a way of testing whether I'm right or not. So one easy test is all you have to do is wait 20 years, and then you can write to me. Um, But hopefully I'll be around. Uh, 20 years, you can say, you know, has... Which of these systems has democratic modernization uh, at a lower level like India or at a high level like Europe and the United States and Japan, has that proved to be politically stable and successful and economically uh, productive? Or do these authoritarian modernizers uh, prove to have certain long-term advantages? I will make the bet on the side of the liberal democracies because I believe that modern political systems have to be accountable. You cannot have good government without feedback loops built into the political system. And as societies become more complex, as they do more things, and as governments do more things, those feedback loops, those accountability mechanisms become more and more difficult so that if people cannot protest the fact that a chemical factory is dumping uh, very toxic chemicals into Uh, the Amur River, as happened in Harbin a couple of years ago, uh, you are going to have a less successful society than one in which those kinds of accountability mechanisms exist. But it's a test, and I'm I'm no prophet, so uh, we'll have to see how uh, those experiments work out. Now, let me go through the four uh, objections uh, to the theory. uh, I mean, in a way, the existence of of China and Russia constitute in themselves a, a kind of objection. But let me go through the other ones. So let's begin with Islam, or not the religion Islam, but 
but the phenomenon that we've seen, particularly since September 11th, of a very radicalized uh, Islamist uh, ideology. Um, many people have said openly, this is a refutation of the end of history. Uh, radical Islamists, Osama bin Laden, the Al-Qaeda folks, do not want modernization in any way, shape, or form. Not only don't they want liberal democracy, they don't want a modern consumer society. And so they are very determinedly stuck um, in the Middle Ages. Now, I have always felt, um, uh, even after September 11th, that this is actually giving these groups uh, too much credit because, in fact, with the um, one complicated exception of Iran, certainly none of the Sunni groups have succeeded in coming to power in a single country. And in those places where they have succeeded, uh, Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, Iran, uh, this is not... uh, uh, for anybody else that is not uh, an alienated Muslim living at the fringes of of a Muslim society, these are not successful models of development that other people around the world uh, want to uh, emulate. And the desire to promote this kind of political Islam uh, really does not, you know, it's not something that's typically felt by people that are not culturally Muslim uh, to begin with. Now, the deeper question that's been raised by a lot of scholars is whether there are permanent cultural obstacles to modernization, either in the economic or in the political form, and that somehow uh, this one particular cultural group represents uh, a particularly severe uh, obstacle. My general uh, view of that is it's extremely unlikely that this is true. Uh, that there is really, as far as I can see, no inherent reason in the religion itself, Islam, uh, to think that in a, uh, a Muslim society cannot modernize economically. And in fact, you've had several fairly successful cases of that, like uh, uh, Turkey and uh, uh, Malaysia or Indonesia at a lower level uh, of development. Uh, and I also think there's no particular reason why a Muslim society cannot uh, sustain, create and sustain a liberal democracy. And again, you've got a number of examples Again, Turkey, Mali, Senegal, uh, Indonesia since 1997. So the question is really, what is the radical um, rejection of modernity being driven by? And here I would say it comes less out of uh, the religion Islam per se. Because Islam is a religion, uh, it's very legalistic, it's very uh, rooted in local Uh, traditions and customs that define and ascribe to individuals uh, their particular identities. But what's very interesting about the people in the contemporary world that tend to be attracted to these uh, Islamist or jihadist groups is that they actually are not people living in traditional Islamic societies. They are people living at the fringes of Western societies. Sometimes that's the case when they live in Western Europe in Muslim minority communities, as was the case of Mohammed Atta or uh, uh, Mohammed Bouyeri, who uh, killed the Dutch filmmaker uh, Theo van Gogh, or the July 7th uh, subway bombers in London. Sometimes the alienation comes when the modern world comes to visit uh, people in the Middle East in the form of Internet, um, uh, television, um, uh, you know, the Western cultural onslaught that we associate with uh, globalization, and I would argue that the extremism you see is actually the result of actually what is a fairly familiar loss of identity uh, for people that are caught 
in this cultural no-man's land between traditional societies and successfully modernizing societies. It's quite interesting that successfully modernizing societies like India and China do not produce this kind of terrorist, but they really come more out of a stratum of people that have been exposed to modernization but have not gotten on uh, the train uh, successfully. And this actually, I think, makes the phenomenon something... It's not that it should make you feel good about it, but it's something we've seen before because that was the classic uh, sociological explanation for the social origins of both fascism and Bolshevism, that typical Bolshevik or fascist was a working-class person who did not find a home in the industrialized world, just left the village, the tightly uh, woven community, now living in a big city without a clear identity, Hitler comes along and says, I'll tell you who you are. You are a German, and I think Osama bin Laden in in many ways has been doing that. He says, I'll tell you who you are. You're a member of this global uh, Muslim uh, ummah, and I can define your identity very precisely in terms of the following ideology. So uh, that doesn't mean that we are not going to have a lot of big problems dealing with um, this political movement uh, now, but... Uh, I just do not think that this is, you know, rises to the level of a um, civilizational uh, challenge. Second uh, big objection uh, to my theory has to do with the problem of international society and democracy at an international level. Now, we have these things called uh, nation-state democracies, United States, France, Japan, South Korea, so forth. And actually, after a couple hundred years of Uh, political development, we pretty much know, you know, there's a lot of variance, but we pretty much know what the institutions of a modern liberal democracy uh, ought to look like. What we really do not have in the contemporary world are mechanisms that enforce a certain degree of accountability and reciprocity at an, and, and, you know, and that's another word for democracy, at an international level. And one of the things I think that's been quite striking Uh, just uh, traveling around the world after the Iraq war is the degree to which this has been exacerbated by the overwhelming dominance of the United States at a whole variety of levels. The United States today spends as much on its military as the entire rest of the world combined. You know, the British at the height of their empire tried to size their navy so it would be as large as the second and third, next second and third largest navies, and we beat everybody combined. Uh, And that hegemony is true at a political level. We can overturn regimes 8,000 miles away. We can, uh, in in economics, uh, the dollar continues to carry very uh, great weight. And culturally, the United States is very hegemonic. But it sets up the ground for a huge amount of anti-Americanism in the world, I think ultimately because of this lack of both American, what what non-Americans regard as um, American accountability and the lack of mechanisms of reciprocity. I don't know how many non-Americans I've heard say in the last few years, you know, I really wish I could vote in an American election because who you elect as president has a big effect on my life, but American presidents are only accountable to American voters. And so I think there is a kind of institutional problem there Uh, institutional problem, by the way, that I do not believe is ever going to be solved um, um, by the United Nations. I think it's going to be solved by actually a layering of multiple and overlapping 
uh, international institutions, uh, many of which will not look like traditional international uh, organizations, uh, that I believe you know, simply have to populate the world is one of the consequences uh, of globalization because globalization does create winners and losers. And if you're going to keep the world stable at an international level, those kinds of mechanisms um, of accountability have to uh, be there. So that is a task. I don't know whether it will be accomplished, but I think it's, uh, it's a task that's crying out to be done. Third objection uh, has to do with uh, poverty and the question of how you get on this economic escalator to begin with. I mentioned earlier that the correlation between a relatively high level of economic development uh, and liberal democracy is, you know, as far as, you know, <laughs> I'm just a social scientist, I'm not a natural scientist, but as far as we social scientists go, it almost qualifies as a law that these two things are, uh, are, pretty, well, uh, are pretty well linked. But that presupposes that you can somehow get yourself up to the level of $6,000 per capita, and it turns out that that is actually not that easy for many societies, and there's a big chicken and egg problem uh, here. The problem with development, I think, is really not the question of resources. Uh, It's not uh, needing an external uh, big push a la Jeffrey Sachs. It is a question of institutions. You cannot have uh, long-term economic growth unless you have a state Uh, And unless that state can do things that states are supposed to do, like provide public services and public uh, goods, maintain a basic uh, rule of law, domestic order, defense from enemies, uh, and the like. And I think if you look around the world today, you'll see that those parts that have successfully developed had relatively strong states in their pre-modern periods, and it was only a matter of getting the policies right that then allowed them to take off. So the state, uh, in many respects, in China was more ancient than it was uh, in Europe. You go all the way back, you know, uh, three and four centuries, and you still had things that looked like centralized administrative apparatuses with bureaucrats and taxation and cadastral surveys and all those sorts of things that states, uh, uh, states uh, uh, undertake. And so it actually wasn't that big a leap for Uh, a relatively strong state like China to figure out that communism was a kind of stupid economic policy, replace it with one that listened to market signals, and then they take off like like gangbusters. But in many parts of the world, including where I'm going, Papua New Guinea, and including many parts of sub-Saharan Africa, there was not a prior tradition of stateness. There were in certain parts of Africa, but in many uh, other parts of the developing world, you had... um, institutions that were at a lower level of development than, than uh, anything that we would call uh, a state. And in many other parts of the world, uh, what institutions you had were severely disrupted by colonialism. Uh, and I think you know, the, the case of this was, was clearly the worst in Africa, where you had a whole variety of traditional institutions at the time of European colonization. Uh, in the, and, and colonization came very late there in the 18. Uh, 70s and 1880s, and the Europeans basically, by the time they got to Africa, didn't want to give them real institutions because they wanted, you know, they were kind of exhausted. They were uh, looking at each other uh, warily uh, in the decades uh, prior to the Great War, uh, and they wanted to do uh, colonialism on the cheap. So instead of what the British did in India, which was spending a 
200-year period building uh, Indian institutions. Uh, They tried to empower local elites. They did um, uh, various uh, variations on local local rule that managed to undermine traditional institutions without transmitting anything like uh, modern state institutions. And I think that this is one of the big problems in global development right now. You cannot solve the poverty problem and get people on this escalator that will get you up to this $6,000 level without being able to solve this prior uh, question of of having a state and having a political order that can uh, provide these uh, sorts of basic services. I would go further than that and say that uh, there is actually uh, an important degree to which the current international system actually promotes state weakness uh, in a whole variety of ways. Sometimes we kill countries by kindness. About 8 to 12% of the GDP of every um, sub-Saharan African country actually comes from the international donor community. Uh, So it's not lack of generosity, I think, that's the problem. But what happens is that when you transfer uh, money on on those levels, you also infantilize countries because they actually don't need to create their own institutions. They can rely on NGOs and external donors to do this. A lot of cases, we freeze conflicts. Uh, Europe went through, uh, in its historical evolution to its current 20th century stage, it went through actually three separate stages of evolution. There's a stage of state formation, which was a bloody period. European rulers uh, uh, fought each other to create territorially um, uh, coherent uh, spaces, political spaces. A lot of that required um, basically ethnic cleansing to make sure that they were relatively homogeneous. A process that really continued up through the late uh, 20th century. (coughs) Excuse me. Second stage was the implementation of a liberal rule of law that restrained the sovereign. Uh, And then finally, and only at the end, you had democratization. And that um, process that took 500 years in the case of a country like France, we are expecting developing countries to replicate within a generation. (coughs) Excuse me. And so for that reason... The problem of poverty uh, remains. <coughs> well, I've been fighting a cold for the last week. And my voice may be giving out. Fortunately, we're at the fourth point now. <coughs> the last point is technology. Uh, as I said... The historical process is driven by the unfolding of modern science and technology. Up till now, (coughs) technology has been able to solve the problems that it set for itself, Uh, (coughs) particularly the problem of economic productivity. (coughs) There's no particular reason to think that this will continue forever. And we have certain technological developments that could obviously end modernization tomorrow. Uh, the one that we've been particular, <coughs> particularly <coughs> worried about is, um, is the question of global warming. 
but there are others as well. There's been a democratization of military technology, uh, the whole problem of weapons of mass destruction democratizes extremely powerful means of destruction that used to be only in the possession of nation-states. Now individuals potentially can uh, employ it. And there are other issues as well. The ability to shape (coughs) human behavior in very subtle ways through biotechnology uh, is another issue that I have written about in the future. And there's no guarantee that our political institutions will keep up with this pace of technological development. You just look at the collective action problems that are uh, engendered by dealing with global warming, and you see some uh, dimensions of that problem. And on this um, fourth point, I give you no particular uh, assurance. I uh, cannot predict whether the growth of the institutions at an international level will meet these requirements or not, and if they don't, I think that Uh, the technology itself that has been the source uh, of this broader um, story that I've been telling you about modernization may bring uh, all of that uh, to an end. Now, I just want to end by saying the following. Uh, I have been accused of being a kind of Marxist, and of course uh, the end of history was a Marxist concept, and as I said, I was just getting off one station uh, early, but I think that I am quite different from most Marxists in the sense that I do not believe that there are iron laws of history. Uh, I do not believe that any of the forces that I have described that would tend to create a long-term process of modernization or a universal history, as I've described it, lock societies in. Agency, individual human agency, is extremely important. If particular battles had not been won, if particular politicians had not gotten elected or uh, had not taken power in a coup d'etat, the entire subsequent history of those societies could be written very differently. I believe, uh, as does Bob Wright, that in the end there are certain uh, equilibrating uh, mechanisms uh, in human societies so that if an invention is uh, invented in one society and then squelched uh, as the uh, Uh, as the rifle was in uh, early Tokugawa Japan, it eventually will get out because it confers an advantage and there will be a process of defensive uh, competition as societies interact with each other. Uh, That means that none of these inventions can ever be suppressed uh, for terribly long, but uh, it doesn't mean that in the meantime you can't have tremendous variation simply based on the kinds of political choices that we as citizens or we as uh, uh, politicians or we as government officials make. Uh, So the fact that I still believe that there's such a thing as history does not relieve any of us uh, from our responsibilities as individuals to be uh, political participants because we, um, in very important ways, can continue to uh, shape our uh, political futures. I'm not going to take any more risks with my voice completely going out, so maybe I'll just stop there and uh, we can just take questions. But thank you very much for your attention. (laughs) Take a long drink and a long uh, (laughs) breath there. Thank you, Frank. Ah, from Dan. There's a question in red ink. Raise your hand if you're Dan with red ink. Um, do you believe 
And Jared Diamond's collapse scenario could happen on a global scale. And I would ask, while we're talking about Diamond, he got his start on the guns, germs, and steel thesis in Papua New Guinea. That's right. Where they were saying, how come I'm carrying your stuff? (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, yeah, I've got a lot to say about that. Uh, First of all, um, as I just said, I think that you could have a civilizational collapse for very straightforward reasons. I mean, if some of the uh, more dire predictions about global warming are true, we probably, it's probably too late to do anything about it, and you know, we could cook ourselves. And, you know, uh, there, there, so there are various um, ways that that could happen. I think, though, that his... Um, you know, so it's, it's a good warning on a, on a general level. I do think, however, that there is probably more robustness built into human societies than, than collapse suggests. Uh, I reviewed that book, actually, and I was struck by uh, the fact that, you know, uh, half of his cases took place in these extraordinarily marginal uh, uh, environmental niches where human beings were probably never, design, you know, uh, destined to live uh, in any event. And so the fact that they all died out of these little islands in the South Pacific um, that really couldn't sustain, you know, vegetable life of any sort, you know, is, is probably not a big uh, accident. There's a much more important uh, issue uh, with regard to development that he raises in Guns, Germs, and Steel, uh, which is that he's basically a materialist uh, determinist in a sense. I mean, that was the big um, thrust of that book, that most people looking in development would say, well, it's institutions, it's culture, it's you know, politics and so forth. And he said, no, no, that's not right. It's the material endowments, the disease burdens, the uh, mineral resources, uh, other you know, sorts of things that countries were uh, given, not as a result of their own uh, choice, but, um, uh, but by nature. Uh, and this is actually, among development economists, led to a big argument because Jeff Sachs, among others, has taken this uh, up and argued that you know, the, the real reasons for uh, the lack of development in places like Africa is uh, essentially you know, disease burdens, malaria, uh, and things that are really beyond the control of the particular um, societies and that institutions are simply uh, a function of getting richer. And there's another school which I actually uh, 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 adhere to that says it's the other way around, uh, that um, you can create modern societies in very inauspicious places. You know, Singapore is in the tropics, um, uh, if you have the right kinds of institutions. And without boring you with that whole argument, I, I think that, in a way, the, um, the Collapse book uh, began to recognize the importance of some of these non-material uh, factors in development uh, to a much greater extent than the, you know, than the first one did, which I think was, a, that, that was an important change. I get the sense you take global warming more seriously than you used to. I... <laughs> I, I never didn't take it seriously, and it seems to me that even if you think that it's not, you know, the science isn't there, it's still a matter of risk, you know, and, and given the consequences of, of betting wrong on this, you know, it probably pays to hedge, so I don't know what the problem is. <laughs> um, so you've been looking at Islam, because it, it's one of the four questions raised about your thesis. Do you think that Islam can have a, basically, what amounts to the equivalent of the Protestant Reformation? Um, in a period of time that will be part of your 20-year time frame? (laughs) Well, not the 20-year time frame, I would suspect. Um, There's a very interesting uh, parallel between radical Islamism and the Protestant Reformation. There's a 
French Islamicist, Olivier Roy, who wrote a book about three years ago called Globalized Islam that made this very interesting case that he said um, you know, that, that a lot of people have complained that there's no, <clears throat> there's no Muslim Luther uh, to set about a more liberal form of, of, um, um, of Islam. And Wa argued that maybe the Muslim Luther is living among us and his name is uh, Osama bin Laden. <clears throat> and the reason for that is actually quite, um, uh, quite evident once you think about it. You know, the Protestant Reformation was not a liberal revolution. Uh, John Calvin ran a very authoritarian, very intolerant city uh, in Geneva, uh, and the people, the Protestant princes in, the, you know, in, in, in uh, Central Europe were not fighting for pluralism. They were fighting to impose their particular uh, brand of Christianity on everybody else, but it did create um, the grounds for modern individualism because Protestantism separated belief uh, from actual practice and made, made it something internal. And Law's argument is that, in a way, that's what's happening in the Muslim diaspora. If you're a Muslim in uh, Britain, surrounding society does not <coughs> endorse uh, your religiosity, and it has to become something uh, internal. And so maybe that plus another hundred years of conflict in the Muslim world will lead to similar uh, conclusions as happened at the end of the you know, early modern period in Europe. But that's, that's really long-term thinking. Uh, <laughs> Robin has a question. Where's Robin? Right here. Uh, the other part of your book's title is And the Last Man. Right. And you describe the end of history as being populated by these sort of sublimated, pallid men without chests, all lawyers and bureaucrats. As your view changed, does modernity have to be that way? <laughs> well, you know, the end of history, the, uh, the, the fellow that wrote about this uh, most cogently was Alexandre Kojev, who was a, a Russian-French uh, um, uh, philosopher that did this very in- influential seminar in Paris in the 1930s and 40s. And, of course, his view, which I would agree with, was that the end of history is really represented not by America but by the European Union. And then he went on to become a bureaucrat in the European Union, and I think, um, actually, the European Union today represents, you know, the end state of the end of history much more than the United States. I mean, Americans, you know, we're actually quite militaristic. We love Fourth of July parades, and we like our army, and we launch wars and do all sorts of things that last men really don't do, whereas <laughs> Europeans actually, uh, you know, believe that they're in this post-national period where the big problem is sovereignty and national selfishness and that they're creating this you know, this home for the last man uh, called the European Constitution where you get beyond all of that stuff. Um, so. San Francisco, you may know, is planning to join the European <laughs> Union. <laughs> Schwarzenegger is making the connection. You spoke about, you know, France taking 500 years to do something, and, uh, and Singapore and Dubai have been attempting the same thing in much shorter time. Eric has the question, uh, when that happens... Do places like Singapore and Dubai have a long-term effect on neighboring regions, particularly with respect to groups resistant to modernization in those regions? Uh, Sometimes yes, sometimes no. I think that sometimes they serve as uh, positive examples. Um, Taiwan, for example, I think was extremely important in changing the thinking of the Chinese communist leadership because they saw Chinese society just across the Taiwan Straits that was... Uh, growing like crazy because it had a market economy, and uh, you know I think they drew some 
uh, lessons for that. But, you know, on the other hand, uh, modernization produces all of these complex uh, uh, effects. It's very socially disruptive, and so uh, there are other places that could be uh, destabilized by very rapid modernization. Well, it's interesting there is Taiwan kept much more of the traditional Chinese culture, herb shops and things like that, than mainland China did. And so part, another part that seemed to go across <laughs> the, the straits was uh, some of the traditional Chinese practices. Yeah, well, of course, I mean, you had communism intervening in China, which you know, went after Confucianism and the family and you know, many uh, aspects of traditional Chinese culture. So that may be part of the, uh, you know, the explanation. Um, of course, a couple of political ones. I know you don't mind because... Um, you had a whole uh, ravening group of communists in New Hampshire or somewhere. Yeah, that's right. After you. Marxists, sorry, we don't have communists anymore, except in Cuba. This one's from John Rennish. What do you think of the project for a new American century, which you endorsed back in 2000? Um, and uh, since then, it's been you know, pretty thick in U.S. foreign policy. Yeah, well, I don't know. I, I find it very amusing all these conspiracy theories built around the project for the new American century because this was basically Bill Crystal in a fax machine. And every time, you know, every time he thought something ought to be done, he'd send a fax around to all of his friends, including me, and say, well, would you be willing to sign this letter? And so, um, and so on a couple of occasions, I signed the letter. Uh, and, you know, I don't think that as an organization it, it represented anything more than that. Now, Underlying that were all sorts of networks of people that had worked together in different administrations and, you know, with common educational... I mean, you know, Bill Crystal's actually... Uh, I inherited his apartment in Cambridge because we were classmates in graduate school, you know, in the Harvard government department. So, you know, so you have all these social ties that go back, but they're... You know, that organization in and of itself I don't think was, was important. And since then, you started a magazine. You want to say a little bit about that? Oh, Free advertising. All right, I started a um, uh, I started a new magazine called The American Interest. Uh, I the, my article, The End of History, had originally been published in a in a magazine called The National Interest, which went under new management uh, about three years ago that I didn't like, and so I left that. And it seemed to me that um, you know we in, in the late 1940s, centrism and bipartisanship were really uh, very popular. And then we entered this 30-year period where it was just not cool to be centrist, you know. And everybody was pushing the envelope uh, on both ends of the political spectrum, mostly on the right, but then, you know, on the left in, in response to that. And you could always get airtime for yourself by trumping uh, and, and saying something more outrageous than the last part. I mean, Ann Coulter is now, you know, the absolute queen bee of all of this, all of this stuff. But I think that, um, you know, that period is over now uh, because I think that uh, if you don't get back to some kind of reasonable discussion uh, that um, doesn't begin from your political label but begins with actually the problem that you have to solve, uh, then, you know, you're not going to get anywhere as a, uh, as a democracy. So the American interest uh, was founded with that in mind. The other thing about it is that it, it, it relates to this business about America and the world because... Uh, when we started the magazine, uh, a lot of people would say, you know, I just don't understand what the United States is right now. And um, that wasn't just uh, non-Americans saying that. I mean, I think a lot of Americans can't figure out exactly what's going on in the country. And so the magazine was designed both to promote that kind of reasonable um, 
political discussion, but also uh, to try to explain uh, uh, the United States uh, to everybody else and to try to reconnect uh, the U.S. with, with the, uh, the rest of the world. Okay, one more partisan question. This one from Diane Pfeiffer. Um, two words, Scooter Libby. Um, the explanation, uh, as I understand, you were uh, an advisory committee member or something in support of him and an yeah. old friend. Well, and, I'll come clean. You know, yeah. I, <clears throat> uh, I uh, worked for Paul Wolfowitz on two occasions in the arms control agency in the mid-1970s, and then where I met Scooter was... Uh, when I worked for him on the policy planning staff in the early uh, 1980s in the um, White House. And so I've been a friend of Scooter's for the last, you know, well, you count the years since 1981. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and then he went on to do the things that he uh, did, and then he got into trouble, and he called me up and said, would you be on my um, uh, whatever it is, you know, committee, uh, uh, legal defense committee, and I said, of course, you know, you're an old friend of mine, and it's quite independent of my, you know, at this point I had already written my last book, America at the Crossroads, in which I <laughs> explained why I was bailing out of this whole, um, uh, um, you know, neocon uh, way of looking at the world, but, you know, that doesn't may- mean that you're not a friend of, you know, who you're a friend of, so that's the only explanation. Say a little bit about um, I mean, your book, America <laughs> at the Crossroads, is in the in the outside the theater, and I recommend it. Um, just say a little bit about what your critique of neocons came to be, and maybe where it is this very minute. Yeah, well, that that'll trigger a whole new tape here, uh, <laughs> and I'll give you the three-minute version of it. Sure, we got um, other stuff here. <laughs> no, I mean, um, part of the reason I wrote that book was that uh, I did not think that you know neoconservatism goes all the way back to City College in the 19, late 1930s and all of these very radical groups, um, some of them Trotskyite and some of them Stalinist, uh, that inhabited the alcoves of the cafeteria there. Uh, and they all, you know, there were people like Irving Howe, Irving Crystal, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, uh, Nathan Glazer, Daniel Bell, Seymour Martin Lipset, people that became absolute giants uh, as uh, academics and as public intellectuals in the next uh, generation. And... Uh, I thought that it was too bad that <clears throat> a movement with this kind of pedigree was being associated with advocacy of the Iraq War because there were other principles that they had talked about that I think would not have necessarily led to that, uh, among which were a very great cautiousness about social engineering. <coughs> the Irving Crystal magazine, The Public Interest, was all about the potentially negative effects of... Um, Uh, social engineering when it came to American domestic social policy and it just struck me that a group of people with that kind of pedigree would then uh, want to engage in one of the biggest social engineering projects you could imagine uh, in uh, in the Middle East. Um, Biotechnology, sometimes you sound a little bit like Bill Joy. Uh Uh-huh. the, the uh, democratization of weapons of mass destruction, uh, biotechnology that may be uh, coming into altered human nature itself and moving at a speed uh, faster than you think the political process can keep up. Um, want to see a little more about that? Yeah, I, I don't uh, see foresee inevitable doom here because mm-hmm. in the past our institutions really have... Um, 
have adjusted to take account of these new technologies. It's always, you know, Deborah Spar wrote this book called Ruling the Waves a few years ago where she actually looked at radio and television and a whole bunch of technological innovations. And, you know, first few years say, oh, it's completely unregulable. Uh, and then eventually they figure out how to regulate it and then it comes under, you know, greater control. And so I expect that process to continue, but I think that there are going to be some, you know, difficult... Um, uh, dimensions of this, particularly in biotechnology, because so many of the things that trouble me about it are also the things that are great, uh, that make it good. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the fact that it's therapeutic means that it's an undoubtedly good thing uh, to promote, but the same drug that can be used for therapeutic purposes can be used for enhancement purposes in ways that, you know, um, you might find, um, or one might find uh, ethically uh, questionable. And so I think as a as a problem of political control, it's it's you know it, it, it's a tough one, uh, but but I'm not you know necessarily a pessimist about this. Even in the case of nuclear weapons, I think that uh, you know we 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 created this miracle. I mean the non-proliferation regime. If you look at the writing on um, the bomb in the period right after 1945, people mm-hmm. were predicting that there would be nuclear wars and mm-hmm. 50, 60 nuclear states within a generation, yeah. and you know that simply didn't come to pass. We got close a couple times. We got close. But, mm-hmm. yep. There's been three talks in this series um, talking about the singularity, the idea of uh, accelerating technology, not only getting ahead of the political process, but basically getting ahead of history, history and everything else so that one can't know what's coming next. Ray Kurzweil gave the full story on that. Uh, <coughs> Bruce Sterling mocked it. And Werner Vinci came here and uh, gave three scenarios of how he thought it might not happen, but he still thought it probably would happen. Now, uh, Roger Smith, who's here, uh, raised the question, Bruce Sterling sees the threat that human human cognition will become industrialized by hyper-acceleration of technology, leading to their version of the end of history, which is the singularity. (laughs) I don't have an opinion about that. (laughs) I mean... Wow! <laughs> uh, this is the end of history. This is your stuff. Yeah, yeah, I know that. You know, it's the Christian rapture, only uh, you know, modernized. Right. Uh, you know, I am not convinced uh, that the that the story of ever accelerating uh, technological change, at least as it plays out in society, is necessarily one that I accept. Uh, this is one comparison that I have ask my students to think a lot about. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you compare uh, the nature of American society between the years 1850 and 1900 and between the years 1950 and 2000, uh, which of those produced greater changes in the way that Americans lived? And I think without question it was that earlier period. In 1850, majority of Americans lived on farms in isolated uh, uh, places without good national communication. Mm-hmm. Um, by the year 1900, they were living in cities in industrialized circumstances, mass education, uh, all sorts of uh, you know, really important uh, social changes brought about by essentially industrialization. Um, if you look at you know, between 1950 and 2000, uh, you know, of course there's the internet and, and information technology, which has had a big impact, but we're still living in a carbon-based um, you know, uh, set of energy technologies. Mm-hmm. Um, many other things are we have more of, but uh, in many respects, the you know in rise of, of uh, 
you know, uh, female empowerment, you know, diversity, a lot of other big social changes. But uh, in many respects, <clears throat> I'm not sure <clears throat> that those collectively were as great as the ones experienced a, a century before. Uh, and so I guess... Hmm. So essentially, uh, we could have a singularity and barely notice. Uh, or, it, you know, <laughs> it could be that the social response to this acceleration is um, equilibrating mechanisms that exist on a whole variety of different levels that tend to push back against, you know, whatever, uh, you know, whatever change is taking place. But uh, Let me raise a cell phone question in this context. Um, so when you go to Japan, you'll see Japanese schoolgirls pushing the edge of the possibilities, what you can do with a cell phone. Here comes the iPhone that's going to push another set of possibilities. And when you go to Papua New Guinea, probably pretty far in the bush, you're going to see folks with cell phones. And you know, the numbers we're hearing now is that about 3 billion people have cell phone connectivity. In the developing world, you can get a cell phone or, or access to a cell phone for $10. Yeah. And everybody's using it. And, and, <laughs> and it's a thing which cuts right through all of this poverty stuff, all of this failed state stuff, a whole lot of the things which you've laid out as yeah. kind of the defining forces here. One question I guess I would put to you now, and then maybe it would be fun to do it again after your trip. Where do you think cell phone plays into your story of the, the coming of liberal democracy? <laughs> uh, the cell phone and other information technologies of the past generation have broadly been good for liberal democracy because I think, broadly speaking, they tend to diffuse power rather than to concentrate. I think the you know, the uh, steel and iron and coal age was probably bad for democracy because economies of scale <clears throat> tended to centralize power uh, and so forth. So on that kind of very abstract level, I think that's the case. But as I understand the idea of a singularity, you have one set of technological developments that then produce results that are really not linear uh, and... Uh, and, and very unanticipated, and so forth. And I would be astonished if the cell phone revolution uh, uh, created a, uh, a real state in Papua New Guinea in 25 years or solved the poverty problem in Africa. There are certain uh, dimensions of those problems that I think that or maybe technology we don't know about you know, could, could address. But you know, my understanding of you know, the sources of development... Uh, is that it is so complex and it is so much based on an interlocking of a lot of different factors that there are very few times when you just you know turn one knob and then you know the whole switchboard lights up. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, we should honor the okay. Well, we'll this bearing your voice, one more question. This one's from Kevin Kelly. Um, after universal values are reached for most of the world, what's next? <laughs> Um, well, <clears throat> there's actually a, a, a part of this that I think is, is here and now, uh, which is really, in a way, the problem of the last man, that even in, well, in, in, in modern liberal democracies, we have a very thin moral community. That's, you know, we're, we're pluralistic and tolerant, uh, we do not impose very strong uh, opinions about good and evil uh, on people that live in our societies. And for the most part, 
this is not adequate for a lot of people, that, that they don't want to just be recognized as uh, equal, free and equal human beings, equal to every other human being on the earth. Uh, they want to be Quebecois or they want to be, you know, uh, um, uh, women or members of an uh, indigenous uh, community or um, Ukrainian or some other uh, source of communal identity uh, that is not universal uh, but that does have stronger values or is bound by uh, you know, something um, uh, uh, tighter than, than uh, just citizens in an um, impersonal uh, democracy. And this is why identity politics has, I think, become uh, so important in all uh, developed uh, societies. And, and, and there are some versions of identity politics that then actually corrode the um, basis of liberal democracy itself. They're, they're facing this problem in Europe already. Uh, if a Muslim family wants to force their daughter to marry somebody back in Morocco and she doesn't want to do it, right, what does the state uh, uh, do about that in terms of, you know, do you enforce her rights as a, as a free citizen or do you defer to the community's interests? And <clears throat> there's just a whole series of problems that we are living with now because of this tension between group rights and individual rights. And do you so, see a, a trend? Well, uh, obviously, um, for a long period from the 60s up until the past decade, the trend was towards multiculturalism and towards the acceptance of group identities uh, increasingly. Uh, I think what's interesting in Europe right now is that there's been an absolute revolt uh, against this because of the violence that you've seen in Holland and Britain uh, and elsewhere. And in fact, the Dutch are kind of at the extreme of this because uh, they not only recognize uh, Groups. I mean, they, you know, Protestants and Catholics and socialists are all organized with their own political parties, schools, trade unions, newspapers. Uh, when, and when the Muslims showed up, they just said, "Okay, you can have your own pillar," uh, which is, uh, you know, it, it's kind of the uh, ultimate version of, of this identity politics. Uh, it, but you know, the problem was that it turned out that people in the Muslim pillar were not uh, actually feeling like they were part of Dutch society. And so there's been this big backlash against, uh, against that and towards the feeling that you have to have a broader, uh, more inclusive national identity. And so we'll see where we go with this. Because Well, it, it, I'll pursue this for a minute because it does really challenge your thesis in a sense. You were saying yeah, the, does, the European well, Union is the model. Yeah. And, but the European Union is having more of an identity politics That's right. That's issue right. than the militaristic, jingoistic yeah, U.S. This is the other, uh, another way in which I could be falsified is if uh, you get backlash movements, for example, against immigration in Europe that undermine the liberal basis of European society, which I think is conceivable. I mm-hmm. wouldn't bet on it, but it's conceivable. Yeah, I mean, so then would be wrong. the book you'll write then as well, History is Back On? Uh, <laughs> well, you know, this is really. No, I mean, I would say that Huntington then would be right. I mean, huh? this, is, this is a retreat. Mm-hmm. You know, th- this is the basic difference between us. There's, he believes that these communal identities are primary and that you're never going to get beyond them and that liberal institutions and globalization, uh, whatever forces for integration they represent, are not strong enough to melt this kind of communal glue. And I believe that the integrating forces are strong enough, uh, Mm -hmm. that the defeat uh, uh, of them by these primordial attachments is not uh, given. 
Uh, and that's, you know, that's the essence of the, di- the dispute between us. That's clear. Do you think we'll know by 2050 wh- which way it's going? Uh, I would hope uh, a lot sooner than that, because I think a lot of this stuff is going to hit a crisis you know, much sooner than, than 2050. Say just a little more. European goes in crisis because of no more uh, immigrants? Yeah. <laughs> You're already seeing uh, a lot of that, and backlash politics, you're seeing that uh, uh, in, in a different form in, in, in this country as well. And so I do think this is actually going to play out in the next decade, and we don't have to wait till 2050 to see. Um. Okay, well, thank you very much. All right, thank you. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.